Acts chapter 3, let's start with a little review here. Does anyone remember the three names, the three biblical names for our movement? The way, the Christians, the Nazarenes. Good. The way, the Christians, and the Nazarene. The three biblical names for our movement. Which one of those three do you think is used the most? The way. It's used five times in the book of Acts to describe our movement. Okay? So any other... Any other synonym, not synonym, any other, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Adjective to describe our movement might be a good adjective, but it's not a biblical one, okay? Messianic, it's a good adjective. It says we're like little messiahs, but it's not necessarily in the Bible, okay? You see what I'm saying? All right, but we love adjectives, don't we? (laughs) Who is the author of Acts? Luke is, Luke is the author of Acts. And we talked about the other day how Luke writes 27% of the New Testament. In terms of volume, Luke carries the most volume. He wrote the most of the New Testament. Paul is 23%. Number three, what are one of the major questions the book of Acts seeks to answer? Hmm. This was, we talked about this in Acts chapter one. What is Luke trying to answer for our friend Theophilus? Do I remember? Hmm. What about this? I'll give you a hint. What do we do or what role do the non-Jews, what we would call the Gentiles, play in this movement called the way? What role do they have? So Luke is writing Acts trying to answer that question. What part, to what extent do Gentiles have a role in our movement? Remember that? And we're going to get to that much later in Acts chapter 15. We're going to talk a lot about Gentiles in Acts chapter 15. Also, he's going to try to answer in the book of Acts, how did this movement spread so quickly? How did it grow so fast? Right? And then what are some key theological tenets of this movement? Number four, when would it likely have been composed? When was this book composed? It doesn't include the death of Paul, and it doesn't include the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple was 70 AD. So it's got to be earlier than that. Some date it as early as the early 60s. So we're talking in the, in the 60s, the decade of the 60s. What is one advantage to having the events of the Gospels happening when they did? We talked about the Romans like to build these things. you guys remember? Roads. The Romans built 50,000 miles of roads all throughout their empire. Think about that. That was like the, the first century equivalent of what we call the internet, isn't it? Where ideas could spread rapidly and be moved around very quickly. Also, they like to build these things called ports in the sea. So that people can get on ships and travel to places they had never been to before. The Romans were very good at building those. And that helped with the exchange of ideas and information across long distances. And then number six. What are the Jewish hours of prayer and name a significant event that transpired on them? This is Acts 3. We talked about this. Yeah. Do you remember the hours? Nine. Ninth hour. Yeah, is one. So let's start. Let's start with third hour, sixth hour, and ninth hour. Okay, and then can you name any significant events that happened on those hours of prayer? Those three hours of prayer. Yeah, yeah. Yeshua was crucified and he died on those hours. Luke is very specific in pinning, uh, pointing that out to us. Anything else happened on one of the hours of prayer? Pentecost. Yeah, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two happened, and they said it was at the what hour? Ninth hour. Anything else? What was it? Zechariah getting the vision from the angel Gabriel about the birth of John happened at one of these hours of prayer. Yeah. He was in there offering the incense at one of these hours. Anything else? Peter and John going to the beautiful gate. 
right? In Acts chapter three, and they see the man's been paralyzed for 40 years. What hour was that? The third hour, right? They're going up for shakari prayers. So we see this window in, in all these different times as significant events happen in these different times. So adding kind of like importance and credibility to these three hours of prayer in the Jewish life and the Jewish religion. You know, we know that Muslims pray five times a day. Well, some of you probably didn't realize observant Jews pray three times a day. And they do so facing Jerusalem as well. All right. I think that's good. We'll go on to the major tenets of the gospel. Okay, I want to put this slide up here because I want to make sure you understand. When I say gospel, this is what I mean. When you hear gospel in some other uh, sects of Christianity, you might hear accepting Jesus into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. That is good news. But here is the gospel as Acts is going to present it and as I would argue all the apostles understood it as well. The gospel or the Besorah, the Evangelion, was atonement has been provided for intentional and unintentional sins of Israel. That's good news, right? Also, atonement has been provided for intentional and unintentional sins of humanity. Very good news, right? Also, a regathering of the ethnic people of Israel from whence they've been scattered. You have to remember that the understanding of the gospel in the first century Jewish world was that Mashiach would regather the lost people of Israel, the lost tribes of Israel, and replant them in their land. Also, a beckoning and a gathering of the non-Israelite people, what we call Gentiles, to join into the family of God and his coming kingdom by means of this atonement and regathering. So you see that there's like atonement for Israel, atonement for the nations. Regathering of Israel, gathering of the nations. That's good news. That's gospel. And then lastly, that the good news is the righteous king, Yeshua, defeated death and secured for those who trust and obey him a place in the resurrection of the dead and the age to come. Jew and Gentile. So the gospel is this big like package, this big theological understanding that a, an ancient Israelite would have heard the word gospel and thought about all the above. Not just, yeah, pray a prayer with me, make an altar call or whatever, come forward and pray a prayer and you're good to go. That's the gospel. No, that's, that might be part of it. You make a public confession, you profess belief in Yeshua, but that's a very, very small tip of the iceberg. Here's a piece of it Zechariah talks about in 823. Many people and strong nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts where? In Jerusalem. And to plead before the Lord. This is what the Lord of hosts says. In those days. Anytime you hear the phrase in any of the prophets, in those days, I want you to think of the age to come. What we call the messianic era. And he says, ten men. From the Goyim, the nations of every Lashon, every language, every tongue, will tightly grasp the Kanaf of a Jew and say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That reminds me of two things. The Exodus experience, when all the mixed multitudes said, let me go with you. I see that God is with you. And many people left with the Israelites and left and fled Egypt and became assimilated, assimilated into the nation of Israel. That's called the mixed multitude. Also, this reminds me of Numbers 15, 38. When God commands the people of Israel, you are to tell the sons of Israel to make for themselves tassels. And they are to be like seat seat on the kanaf, 
of their garments, on the four kanaf of their garments. So what are the nations grabbing hold of here? Yeah, kind of that thing that holds the tzitzit, the tzitziot. It's like they're seeing that and they're saying, I want, they're not literally grabbing that, but what they're saying is like, ah, I see you're associated with these people and with that God. Take me with you. I see that you are a powerful people. Your God is powerful. I want to go with you. We talked last week about begging for alms and how that was very customary and still is customary to give sadaka alms before you pray, right? And how this guy standing outside the beautiful gate, or I should say sitting outside the beautiful gate, was begging for alms because he knew that. That was a very entrenched theological concept. We talked about where the beautiful gate was, and we determined we're not sure where the beautiful gate is. There's not a shred of uh, archaeological evidence that tells us with certainty where the beautiful gate was in Acts chapter 3. Then we talked about the restoration of all things and the invitation back to the garden. We talked about how temple, you're supposed to look at the temple like the Garden of Eden. And when the man stood through the miraculous power of Yeshua and was being walked into the Garden of Eden, so to speak, he was in a, in a way, a microcosmic picture of the restoration of all things, right? He was healed and then let me take you into the garden. In other words, your exile is now over. And I think we're supposed to see Acts 3 that way. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. We're going to read it verse by verse, and I'm going to comment as we go. Acts chapter 4. Kepha, or Peter, and Yochanan were still speaking to the people. When the Kohanim, the priest, the captain in charge of the temple police, and the Sadducees, or in Hebrew, the Sadduqim, they came upon them. Now, what do you know about the Sadduqim, the Sadducees? They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't necessarily believe in the prophets as being authoritative or scriptural either, or being inspired. So do they believe in a coming Messiah? Kind of squishy on that. They don't believe in angelic or demonic beings, right? So they're coming to them, and they are annoyed that they are teaching the people the doctrine of what? The resurrection of the dead. And offering Yeshua, this messianic figure, as proof of it. So it's like a double whammy to them. The temple police arrested them. And since it was already evening, they put them in custody overnight. So let's pause here. How many people are sitting on this body, this, this governing body called the Sanhedrin? How many do you think there are? Seventy. Half of them, well, a portion of them are Sadducees, a portion of them are Pharisees. How many do you think are Sadducees that don't believe in the resurrection? There's 65 who are Sadducees. The other five are Pharisees. They believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe in angelic beings. They believe in a coming Messiah. So how is it going to go for these guys? <laughs> If you have a jury like that, if you have a court like that, right? Of the five Pharisees, three of them are named in the New Testament, and all three seem sympathetic to the way. You've got uh, Nicodemus, Pharisee, probably sat on the Sanhedrin. You've got, um, uh, who was the other one? Um, Gamliel, Paul's teacher. Remember Gamliel? We're going to see him in the book of Acts as well. Who else? Uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah, all Pharisees. Of those five, three are named they all seem sympathetic to our movement. 
It says in verse 4, However, many of those who heard the message trusted, and the number of men alone numbered about 5,000. Where else do we see 5,000 men alone? Matthew 14. Yeshua takes two loaves and five fish, five loaves and two fish, and he feeds how many? 5,000 men alone. It uses the exact same phrase. I think Luke is trying to link it back to that and hook it back on that and saying that like now Peter and John are taking the, the bread of the word and he's miraculously feeding 5,000 people. I mean, and doing all that without a microphone. <laughs> he's, giving, he's giving these spirit-induced speeches and invoking the, prof, the prophets. And he's doing it boldly. And in doing so, their numbers increased to about 5,000. The last time we had a number on the size of our movement, the way, was 3,000. And that was in Acts chapter 2. And before that, it was only 120. So we went from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000. The next day, the people's rulers, elders, and Torah teachers assembled in Yerushalayim, along with uh, Anan, the Kohen Gadol, Caiaphas, Yochanan, Alexander, and the other men from the family of the Kohen Gadol. They had the emissary stand before them and asked, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now, wasn't Peter already filled with the Holy Spirit? Yeah, in Acts chapter 2. All the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. So did the Holy Spirit leave? Did it go away? No, see, there is one baptism in the Holy Spirit. But the idea here, there's multiple fillings, and fill might not be the best translation here, but it's the Greek word pletho. It's where we get the word plethora. Pletho means to be like overcome by or to be like uh, overflowing with. Does that make sense? So we could... We could uh, Better translate this, I think, as then Peter began to get overflowed by the Holy Spirit. Make sense? Because he had the Holy Spirit back in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit, he was immersed in the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being examined today about a good deed done for a disabled person, if you want to know how he was restored to health, then let it be known to you that to all the people of Israel... That is in the name of the person named Yeshua. No. What does he call him? Mashiach Yeshua. Messiah Yeshua. What if he left off Messiah? Hmm. He'd just be a prophet. It's very important, I think, that he says to them with boldness, Messiah Yeshua. The Mashiach, right? From Nazareth, whom you had executed on a sake of criminal, but whom God has raised from the dead. Oh man, I'm a Sadducee. I don't like that. I, I don't like that word. That this man stands before you perfectly healed. Man, talk about like a stick in their eye, theologically speaking. You don't believe in the resurrection of the dead? And you're, you have these, these people standing in front of you who clearly performed a miracle in front of the eyes of all the people. And they say that it's because of the Messiah Yeshua... And that this Messiah has been raised from the dead. If I'm a Sadducee standing there and all the people's eyes on me, I, I don't know what to say. I've got a lump in my throat, right? Verse 11. This Yeshua is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. And where is he quoting from there? He's quoting from Psalm, Psalm 118. He's also quoting from Psalm, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32. 
There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by whom we must be saved. Verse 13. When they saw how bold Peter and John were. Now, this is one of the one of the main functions of the Holy Spirit is to give you boldness. So that like in Luke 21, Yeshua says you will stand before governors and, and kings. Right. And the Holy Spirit will give you the boldness and the words to say. That's one of these one of the roles that the Holy Spirit does for us is gives us boldness, a supernatural boldness. And they saw that they were just untrained people of the land. Now, wait a second. Let's juxtapose these two groups of people. The, the high priests and all of their training, all of their um, ritualistic observances of, of the temple worship system, all of their knowledge of the scriptures. And they are, someone is throwing down on them who's just some simple fisherman from the Galilee. And they don't, they, they're left speechless. What would that do to them? What would that do to you? Now, this isn't, here's what this isn't saying. That education and, and good training and discipleship is bad. That's, that's actually good. But what it is saying is that God can take simple, untrained people and through the power of the Holy Spirit, get them to examine and shout down and call out the inconsistencies of religious leaders' in, inconsistencies in their theology. Make sense? And I pray that Gabe Rutledge will always be the type of person that if someone is a simple person of the land, yet can speak a simple biblical truth and prove to me how I'm biblically off course, that I'll have the humility to say, wow, you're right. That's the Holy Spirit speaking through you. I'm convicted in that. Verse 14, moreover, since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there beside him, there was nothing they could say or discredit the healing. So they took a step away from the Sanhedrin while they discussed the matter privately. They said, what can we do with these men? They asked each other, why anyone in Yerushalayim can see that a remarkable miracle has come about through them. We can't possibly deny that. Now here's, here's what they could have done. Maybe we should just accept what they're saying is true. Maybe we should accept this Yeshua who we had executed on Passover. Maybe we should accept that he's the Mashiach. Maybe we should accept that these men are, are part of a movement of God here. But that, that, would retake, that would take for these religious leaders to step down off of their high horse, to let go of their sweet gig they have, their partnership with the Romans, and all the money that's flowing through these positions, that would take them, for, for, take them to hand that away, to, to, to put that away, and to step down from that. That's a very difficult thing to do. Karen, does your hand? Yeah. 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 That would take a lot of humility. Yeah. And there's people, you know, and pastors and and leaders within the Christian movement who have put forth and posited great theological treatises that are just completely wrong and unbiblical. And when faced with truth, they have a decision they have to make. Sometimes, do I? Admit that I've been wrong all these years and potentially lose a large portion of the people who give or do I double down? And do I, and do I maybe slander those people and belittle them in front of everyone to, to discredit what they're saying? Let's see what these guys do. 
Verse 17, but to prevent it from spreading any further among the people, let's warn them not to speak anymore to anyone in this name. So they doubled down, didn't they? So they called them in again and ordered them to, under no circumstances, speak and teach in the name of Yeshua. But Peter and John answered, you must judge whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than listen to God. Now this right here, it shows that our movement is going to tap into a very old and very biblical thing to do. And that is disobey authorities when they are in disobedience and rebellion to God. Hmm. Okay. Let's go through, let's go through a quick list here that I can, I can think of the top of my head. Daniel disobeyed authorities when he was asked to disobey God. Um, Dan, uh, Mish, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? Civil disobedience, right? What about the Magi from the East? Did they return back to baby Yeshua? No, they disobeyed. What about the parents of Moses? They were supposed to euthanize their child. Did they do it? No. What about the Egyptian uh, midwives? Did they terminate the life of the baby? No. No. What about Esther? Was she supposed to go before the king? No. You see, it's a very biblical thing to be civilly disobedient when the authorities over us ask us to be disobedient to God. You know, I think it was um, Susan B. Anthony who said, uh, uh, disobedience to, to tyrants is obedience to God. Now, here's sometimes what happens, though. In our pride, we, we, we become overzealous and, and we think that, that in every turn, we should lash out in anger and disobey the authorities. All these people had one thing in common. They prayed a lot. They knew their word. They knew the scriptures a lot. And they disobeyed in a very humble way, in a very respectful way to the authorities. In other words, they said, I know that you're the king. I know that you're the queen. I know that you want me to do this. And I respect that position. I have prayed about it. And I regretfully admit that I must disobey that, that order from you. So in other words, you don't see these people like with pitchforks and torches storming the castle. You know, Daniel's not trying to start this rebellion with everyone there. He's just saying, I'm going to disobey that. And so be it. Whatever comes, yeah. comes. With the coronavirus thing. Yeah. And, and we will constantly have to face those to think that we will go through this life without having to face those kinds of decisions. We're, we're like in La La Land. You will perpetually have to face those decisions in your life. So let's keep going. Verse 20. As for us, we can't help talking about what we have actually seen and heard. They threatened them some more, but finally let them go. They couldn't punish them because of the people. For everyone was praising God over what had happened. Since the man who had been miraculously healed was more than 40 years old. Upon being released, they went back to their friends and reported to the head priests and the elders and what they had said to them. When they heard it, they prayed that they would never have persecution ever again. No. What did they say? They raised their voices to God with singleness of heart. And they said, Sovereign Lord, Master, you made heaven and earth, the sea and everything that is in them. By the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David. Now, this is interesting because what he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is what inspired David to write this psalm. It kind of gives you a glimpse of what Holy Spirit inspiration looks like, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit dwells people, dwells in people, and then prompts them to write something. He says, 
In Psalm, this is uh, quoting Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples devise these useless plans. The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers assembled together against the Lord, against his Messiah. And Peter continues here. This has come true in this city since Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all assembled against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you made Messiah, to do what your power and plan had already determined beforehand should happen. Verse 29. So now, Lord, take note of their threats. Notice they say here, enable your slaves to speak with boldness. What are they not praying for here? They're not praying for like prosperity gospel, are they? They're not praying for like, make it easy for us. Show us favor in our jobs. Show us favor in our bank accounts. Stop all this persecution. What are they saying? Give us boldness. That's a powerful prayer. May we all in this room have boldness when the time comes, right? Stretch out your hand to heal and to do signs and miracles through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. So in other words, we got in trouble for doing things and performing signs and miracles in Yeshua's name and speaking about Yeshua. Can you make more opportunities like that for us? (laughs) How counterintuitive is that? that They pray for that. Can you allow us to do that more? In, in a United States of America that like blows our minds, like we think, oh man, I, I gotta get out of here because I'm like I'm getting hungry, or you know, I this is I this is good and all, I'm checking the box for the week, but man, to pray like they did, give us more opportunities to be persecuted by the authorities in my day. That to me is revolutionary. And that that to me is like a whole other level. In verse 31, while they were still praying. The place where they were gathered was shaken. They were all playtho. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, they were already baptized in the Holy Spirit. But here the Holy Spirit is welling up in them. And it's spilling out. And they all begin to speak a message with boldness. All the many believers were in one heart and one soul. And no one had claimed any possessions for himself. But everyone shared everything he had. And with great power, the emissaries continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua. And they were all held in high regard. No one among them was poor, since those who owned land or houses sold them and turned over the proceeds to the emissaries to distribute those who had need. Let's pause here because this sounds a lot like something Karl Marx might want. (laughs) It sounds like communism, doesn't it? Everyone having according to their need, according to his ability, according to needs. That sounds a lot like communism. That's because it is. <laughs> I think Karl Marx was on to something. And I think, and someone's going to sniff, sniff this out of the, the live stream. Communism, in its purest form, is the best form of government for humans. But guess what? We're all fallen, aren't we? We all are sinners. And anytime someone actually tries to put legs to Karl Marx's idea, guess what it boils down to? He who has the biggest guns and the most money. Why? Because everybody that tries to put legs to Karl Marx's idea have to first and foremost put the notion of there being a supreme higher power, let's say God, away. They have to denounce a belief in a higher power. And the state becomes the God. Make sense? So it becomes each according to to their need at the point of a gun. Now do you see any guns or do you see any coercion going on here in Acts chapter 4? None of that. What's going on then? What is prompting these individuals to want to do this? The Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit's taking it and circumcising their hearts and saying, you know what? I have more than I need. Let me get rid of that. Give it to the leadership of the community of the way and let them figure out how best to do with that excess money that I have and those resources that I have. So this is, we could call this Holy Spirit-induced communism. And this for me is like the high watermark of our movement. Now, I hope that communism doesn't get tried this side of the kingdom anymore. There has been more human death and suffering and starvation because of people failing to try and to implement Karl Marx's ideas than all the wars in human history combined. It is a horrible idea this side of the kingdom. But isn't it beautiful to see all these people just out of their own volition wanting to give and fill in the gaps where there is need and there's hunger? And also we see emerging here, there's kind of a, the first glimpse of a leadership structure within the way. In other words, it's not anarchy. Anarchy is bad. But biblical leadership is good. And we'll talk as we get further in Acts what biblical leadership looks like, especially in a, in a local assembly. Verse 36. Thus, Yosef, whom the emissaries renamed Bar-Naba, which means the son of the lifter-upper. <laughs> he was one who uh, encourages, in other words. He was a Levite and a native of the island of Cyprus. He sold a field which belonged to him and brought the money to the emissaries. Now, Paul likes to do this really interesting thing. He likes to introduce a character that later on in the book of Acts will be a major, major player. All right, so he's, he's introducing this, this fellow named Barnaba. And later we're going to see Barnaba is is a, a major character in this story and in the history of our movement. So I want to close out with a couple, because couple, it's important. I pull practical application for you guys today from the book of Acts. And there's a lot here. But the ones that really jumped out at me were that any time... Now, <laughs> let's, let's pause and say this first. When you flip over, everybody do this. Turn to Acts chapter 5. What's the first word in Acts chapter 5? But. So we hit this high watermark. Everything's hunky-dory. Everyone's giving. Everyone's sharing. Everyone's loving. And then Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But. That is. It breaks my heart. Anytime I have seen someone get off the rails of our faith, so to speak. It is. A hundred percent of the time. Because they forgot how helpless they were without the Messiah. And they began to think that they were something in and of themselves. And then they began, by extension, thinking less of other people. So it could be knowledge and information that you keep in this three-pound brain. Or it could be the amount of ones and zeros in your bank account. But as soon as we get off the tracks and we forget that without Yeshua of Nazareth, we are lost and without hope in this world. We flip over to page five, verse one, but things are about to change. Things are about to go downhill. I pray that I stay on those tracks and I pray that I remain broken with the knowledge and the assurance 
that I am guilty and worthy of death. And were it not for the blood of the spotless lamb, that's what I accept. But Yeshua promised me redemption and atonement and promised me the baptism in the Holy Spirit so that my wicked heart could be circumcised and regenerated to want to follow him and his word and his commandments and just out of my own volition want to give other people and not treat them as something lower than myself. I want to close with Philippians 2 verses 1 through 8. Philippians 2 verses 1 through 8. And what's really interesting about this is the man who wrote this letter to the believers in Philippi is present in Acts chapter 4. He is, I should say, more than likely present in Acts chapter 4. And this man who wrote this letter is going to go on this tirade to try to kill as many of these people as possible. Talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. You guys there? Mm-hmm. I'm not there. Here you go. Philippians. Oh, you got it? Here, I got it right here. I'm one page over. Thank you. Thank you for picking up my slack, though. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, Paul, Shaul, the Pharisee, the student of Gamliel, the great persecuted, the first persecutor of our faith, the one who oversaw and executed the first martyr of our faith, writes the following. If you have any encouragement for me from your being in union with Mashiach Yeshua, any comfort flowing from love, any fellowship with me in the spirit or any compassion and sympathy, then complete my joy by having a common purpose, a common love, by being one in heart and in mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or out of vanity, but in humility. Regard each other better than yourselves. Look out for each other's interests and not just for your own. So in our movement, there seems to be this precedent that Gabrielle is more significant than I am. Sarah, more significant than I am. Jim Miller, more significant than I am. The list goes on. That in our movement, the leaders are the ones who get down and wash the feet. They're the ones that, God forbid, when they offend even a child in the way, in the community, are willing to get down on one knee and beg for forgiveness. They're the ones that are willing to lay the life down for everyone, right? And that's why I said, if you're called to be a shepherd, not have a desire to be a shepherd. And frankly, if you have a desire to be a shepherd or a leader within our movement, I automatically question your motives. Because this is a calling thing, not a desire thing. Now, some of you have that call in your life, and some of you have lived that call out. Like I think about Mike and Edith back there. And they have been called, they have, they have served in the mission field, and they have pastored, they have, they have, they have led, and they have shepherded. And it is something that the Lord places on your heart that you cannot escape. It is not a desire thing. Because if it's a desire thing, it becomes about your, the check you get at the end of each month. It becomes about 
your status and how many viewers you get or how many books you sell. But here, it seems like our movement is founded upon this principle that we would be dead without Messiah. We deserve damnation without Messiah. But because of him, you have hope and you need to be other little messiahs for those around you. I hope this teaching has encouraged you and blessed you and hopefully elucidated some of Acts chapter 4. Next week, Acts 5. So you got homework to do, and that is to read Acts chapter 5.